Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Today, I have such a great pleasure to be interviewing Rian Eisler. Hello, Rian. Well, hello, Agnes. So it's such an honor for me to be interviewing Rian for the podcast. Of course, we interview a lot of authors and thought leaders, but Rian not only wrote book and is an author uh, of a huge number of books, but there have been even books written about Rian. So just as a way of introduction, um, Rian Eisler is the president of the Center for Partnership Studies, and she's an, inter- an internationally known systems scientist and attorney. She's working for the Human Rights of Women and Children, and she is the author of a number of um, real groundbreaking books. One of them is called The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics, And Archbishop Desmond Tutu said about this book that it's a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. And uh, Rian has such a huge um, body of work that we cannot simply cover in this one um, uh, podcast episode. So we will be zooming in on some of it that intersects with the work of the Work-Life Hub, which is the caring economy. And also we'll talk more Uh, in detail about the social wealth economic indicators that they have developed at the Center for Partnership Studies. So um, this was my my quick uh, introduction that didn't do any justice to your work, Rianne. But I would like now to ask you to tell listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and your journey, your passion, and and what led you um, to discover uh, that this is the work where you would like to really leave a mark on the world. Well, thank you so much, Agnes, for that warm introduction and also for the important work that you do. As you know, I have a great passion for this work, or I wouldn't be doing everything I'm doing uh, and have been doing for so many years. And um, I have this passion not only... Um, because of my research and and what I've discovered about, uh, well, about what is possible for us as human beings, but also as a mother and now also a grandmother, um, deeply concerned 
as so many of us are, about what kind of future our children will inherit. And that that passion is actually grounded in my own early childhood because I was uh, a child refugee from Nazi Europe. And uh, that experience really, uh, well, it led me to questions that so many of us have asked at some point in our lives. Does it have to be this way? Does there have to be, when we humans have such an enormous capacity for caring and for empathy and for sensitivity and for creativity, does there have to be so much insensitivity, cruelty, and destructiveness? And at bottom, those are the questions that eventually led to my multidisciplinary, cross-cultural, historical uh, research uh, really examining what kind of social configurations, and of course that includes economics, doesn't it, uh, will support uh, the uh, expression of, of the positive capacities that we humans have or the negative ones. And um, that eventually uh, led to many books, as you said, um, including actually two um, that um, are in, well, my books are now in about 36 languages, um, but um, The Real Wealth of Nations just uh, came out in Italian and in Spanish, um, and I think that's the book that we want to focus on, isn't it? Yes. Just as a side note, also um, telling listeners that um, we also have a guest blog post uh, on our website as well. So um, aside of this podcast and then directing uh, our listeners to your uh, other body of work, they can also have a look at, at uh, what you kindly wrote for us also in relation to this um, piece of work. We're, we're going to be discussing systemic um, changes and, and reframing of systems of measuring and expressing and, and talking about our lives, essentially. And to start this conversation, I would like to ask you about um, this recurring reference to work and care, work and life as two distinctive um, elements. And in our pre-podcast um, exchange, you, you already challenged me on this. And so I just wanted to see this with you, um, your thoughts about, um, you know, how we could already reframe the conversations and our beliefs around these, these separated realms of, of, of our lives, essentially. Well, we are trapped really in old thinking. Um, thinking that really devalues, um, uh, well, women and also anything that has been uh, associated, uh, and these are social constructions, you know, gendered values, really, uh, with women and the so-called feminine. And that uh, has really affected the language, including this whole language about balancing life and work. I prefer to call it balancing uh, family and employment, for one thing. Um, 
because what we're really talking about here is all of one piece, isn't it? I mean, we we don't uh, consider the work that we do, and uh, yes, work that has traditionally for a long time been relegated, and I mean relegated, to women uh, of caring uh, for people, of, of keeping a clean and healthy home environment, right? Um, in other words, of caring for self, uh, for others, and by extension also caring for nature, by the way. Uh, we've, we've devalued this. And so I think that it's very important that we recognize that this is uh, artificial. Absolutely. Just when you were speaking, I just remembered an example that I heard from the UK where they were thinking of introducing um, flexible working um, in uh, a place of work. An employer was thinking of introducing different kinds of flexibility options for the employees. And they also flagged up the possibility to have reduced hours or part-time work. And the reaction was that men associated part-time work immediately with lower levels of opportunities, lower levels of recognition, and were very, very against, uh, you know, even, even those who would have liked or really benefited from it pre-retirement, for example, phasing out. But there was just a real... Um, blocking of anything that had to do because it's associated as you say with 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 women with the feminine and and thus with no or very little value well that really is um one of the uh, things that we have to uh, unpack that we have to make visible um which is that we have uh, been taught both men and women i mean to really uh, think in terms of a gendered system of values. And again, I want to emphasize I'm not an essentialist. I'm a constructionist. These are social constructions. The devaluation of women and the so-called feminine, whether it be in men, you know, women are very often, unfortunately, still I consider a man who is sensitive, who is caring, as a wimp, as, as a sissy, right? Mm. Uh, you know, as effeminate, as if that were a bad thing. Uh, I mean, think about it. And uh, so I'm not surprised that men uh, would also devalue <laughs> uh, women and the feminine. I mean, I think we have to really get down to that and ask ourselves, what do we really value? And that question becomes more and more a very pragmatic one, uh, not only in terms of human well-being, but in terms of economic uh, effectiveness as we move more and more into the post-industrial knowledge service, uh, nanotechnology, uh, you know, this extraordinary uh, technological age that we're in when uh, already so much uh, that has been considered, quote, work, right, jobs, yes. uh, is being replaced by automation, by robotics, artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, algorithms are now uh, really uh, totally taking over in the financial industries, in, you know, 
it, it's a whole new world. So we have an opportunity, and this is really a crisis, but also an opportunity to think very carefully about how do we redefine productive work. Absolutely. And, and care work uh, is really the first step. I mean, recognizing the value of care work is the first step towards what I call a more caring economy, where caring for people starting in early childhood and caring for nature are recognized as the most important human activities. This this new world of work, so the work of um, artificial intelligence, of, of algorithms, of digitalization, of less and less need for real physical work, but more and more a need for the soft skills that make us human next to these machines of our skills for empathy, for um, negotiation, for filtering and prioritizing information, that this could actually be a great opportunity, a real tipping point for for women and the recognition of and valuing of, of, of women and of their contribution to 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 the world. Um, do you do you also see this in this um, optimistic uh, sense? Well, that is the um, positive scenario, of course. Uh, but, you know, it really depends on, and that's a whole separate conversation, on how these, how automation, how artificial intelligence is programmed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if it is programmed, again, for domination, for control rather than for caring, um, we've got a real, real uh, negative scenario. And one of my books, actually, um, the one that I'm probably best known for, The Chalice and the Blade, um, which um, it really ends with these two scenarios, you know, breakthrough in evolution and breakdown in evolution. So, yes, I see it as an opportunity. I also see it as an opportunity for men to embrace uh, that part of their human potential, which has been so maimed and distorted uh, by the socialization for what I call domination systems, where masculinity, real masculinity, right, is equated with domination, with violence, with control. So maybe another um, question about this new emerging world of work. Um, Some of the experiences from companies and also quite a lot of articles are about the millennials um, and and the, the millennial generation coming into the workplace and bringing with them new um, attitudes and new behavior and, and perhaps even new uh, or, or different values. Do you see that, that perhaps this new generation has um, a much more blended um, uh, way of approaching life and work and care um, between men and women compared to the the older generations? Could this be perhaps a a hopeful um, development? Well, that certainly is a hopeful development, but I really think that we have to be realistic. What we call the millennials, with their, as you say, more blended view of gender roles and their more egalitarian view of gender relations and their vision 
of a more caring society and economy, right? Mm. That's a, a minority globally. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of young people are not uh, changing, uh, and and that is a huge, huge uh, problem that we face. Um, and we saw that even in the United States in this last election, it wasn't just old people uh, or, you know, middle-aged people, mm-hmm. although that, you know, uh, young people tend to vote less in the United States than older people, it was also quite a few young people. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do see that trend um, as a very healthy one. Um, but I also um, still see, even among millennials, I have to say, mm-hmm. uh, this hesitancy to talk about gender. In the United States, uh, they'll talk about race, which is certainly very, very important. Uh, but when when it comes to talking about gender, they don't talk about it. It's still a taboo, just as race was some time ago. And it was only as we started to talk about race, really, in the United States, that things began to at least move forward. And so I feel very, very strongly that we've got to help young people really recognize this hidden system of gendered values. Absolutely. Um, maybe uh, if we could now move um, towards the the work that you have done and with the Center for Partnership Studies and your work in your book on the social wealth economic indicators, because that's what I find to be a really exciting, interesting part of uh, of your work. Um, because when we interview um, on the podcast and we speak to research centers such as Eurofound or, or we we were also previously talking about the OECD and, and governments, um, they're still very much bogged down by GDP and everything that um, can be measured uh, according to them, um, which is on this uh, productive uh, economy, um, not taking into account the productivity and the economy of caring. Um, so maybe can I ask you, Rian, to tell listeners a little bit the background of the social wealth economic indicators and and then we can maybe go a little bit more into uh, what they are and, and what they're referring to and, and how we could ensure that more people know of them and, and maybe develop them further. Well, I am very, very committed to developing uh, new metrics. Why? Because, of course, if we, uh, you know, people say you can't measure the economic value of care work, which is absolute nonsense. You know, there was a recent Australian study, for example, showing that if the unpaid work of caregiving performed mostly by women in in homes and households were uh, considered, uh, it would constitute uh, 50% of the reported Australian GDP. And the reason, uh, and other studies show that it's about 25 to 50%. The difference, by the way, between those two is what kind of uh, uh, approach you use. If you just take the value Uh, that is given to that work in the market, it's much lower. But if you also 
uh, take into, into account what we call uh, uh, opportunity cost. In other words, uh, if that person or that woman had gone and, and taken a job in the market, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, if we factor that in, it is much higher. So this is just by way of introduction. Uh, metrics matter. How, what you measure matters. And GDP, of course, measures a lot of, I mean, it's really a weird, uh, weird, weird uh, metric because it includes activities that actually um, hurt rather than help uh, humans and the planet. You know, uh, it includes making cigarettes, for example, and selling cigarettes, as well as the medical costs and the funeral costs. They're all great for GDP, right? Yes, I mean, oil spills, you know, great for GDP, you know, the cost of cleanup, etc. So we started from a very different perspective. Um, rather than just measuring what is or is not changes hands in the market, uh, we really uh, decided that we have to look at, especially, as I said, as we enter the post-industrial age, when economists never tire of telling us that the most important capital is what they like to call high-quality human capital, right, you know, yes. uh, et cetera. Look at, human, at the state of a nation's human capacity development, but also at the same, and, and gender uh, has a huge part in this, you know, the, the value, I mean, how much is invested in child care, good quality child care, how much is given, uh, for example, uh, in... In, uh, in in funding a paid parental leave. In other words, not only looking at, at taking a snapshot of what is, but also looking at what kind of investments make for human capacity development. And that's the essence of the social wealth economic indicators, which, by the way, also measure things like innovativeness, uh, you know, patents that are taken out, because that is part of human capacity uh, development, isn't it? I mean, are people innovative, or do they just follow, you know, the norms as they are? So the social wealth economic indicators, we developed them by working with the Urban Institute on bringing together uh, some really very expert economists in this area. And then in 2014, we launched the first iteration of our social wealth economic indicators. And what we want to do now is to compress that. Uh, you know, one of the powers of GDP is this one number, right? Yeah. Uh, we want to compress that into a social wealth economic index which I think could make a huge, huge difference by, again, you know, showing uh, that there isn't a big, that, you know, the notion that somehow quality, investing in quality of life for people and investing in a, quote, healthy economy are, are, are at odds with each other is absolute nonsense. Yes. And that's what these indicators show, among many other things. And of course, they show the value the economic value of the work of caring for people starting in early childhood. Well, there's just so much there that I, I would like and, and could pick up on, but it just when you were speaking, it really reminded me of my time as a lobbyist um, in Brussels that 
you know, having gone through a number of election cycles, um, you know, one of the most used um, catchphrases or, or taglines of any politician running for any kind of office is always children are our future and the future generation. And then um, there's a l very little follow up then afterwards in terms of convincing them or, or seeing how they are, um, you know, putting this into action in, for example, investing in, in quality, real quality, um, early childhood care and education. Um, so there, there's still this great um, political uh, resistance to, to making these financial commitments to investing in childcare and other care initiatives and, and services. And so would you say that partly it is because even maybe policymakers or politicians are uninformed because maybe they what they see is also just this GDP, this put on a pedestal and, and, and really chasing this growth um, agenda. And maybe they themselves don't fully understand the full picture. I think that is certainly a very, very important reason for the urgency of developing uh, a social wealth economic index and also of simply changing the mindset. I mean, I start with metrics because, you know, uh, people always want things quantified. But of course, what we're really talking about here uh, is getting rid and moving away from very, very old ways of thinking. I mean, I, I have to really go deeper now to the issue of our economic models, uh, both capitalism and socialism, not only came out of early industrial times, you know, hundreds of years ago, right? But they also came out of times that oriented more to what uh, my research and that of others has called the configuration of domination systems, in which the devaluation of, uh, yes, the female half of humanity and anything uh, that is associated with, uh, quote, women's work, women's roles, is devalued. And so uh, neither capitalism nor socialism really uh, well, I mean, caring for nature is not part of it. Uh, you know, nature was there to be exploited for both Marx and for Smith. And as for the work of caring for people starting in early childhood, that for them was just reproductive work rather than, quote, productive work. Uh, so we have a whole luggage here that we have to unpack and re-examine but it isn't just enough to critique. It is also very important to uh, then reconstruct. And that's what this work is about, isn't it? Absolutely. And just coming back also to your question just before, what you said about um, experimentation and patents. Um, you know, having kids myself and, and, and then having gone through... Um, evaluating or thinking how I was brought up and how I want my children to be brought up. One thing that I have really has really struck with me since the beginning was that there seems to be an 
for our for what we have been programmed to think an almost counter intuitive idea namely the more safer you make a small child feel the more they will want to go out and explore the world the more you nurture them and and love them and and care for them really really intensively the more they will want to explore and experiment and they will feel safe to do that to even perhaps make mistakes and come back and and reiterate and try again maybe compared to some of the old um or or older beliefs about no you have to you know um you have to push these the children out and and get them let them get on with it and not mollycoddle them uh not spoil them and and it totally resonates actually with some of the work we're doing with companies because that's exactly the same narrative we say that if you have a work environment where people feel safe they feel respected they feel accepted for their whole selves for their whole beings then they will become more innovative they will become more motivated more creative so um i i think there's definitely a convergence between um understanding what caring is about and what it can do what it can achieve not only looking at the cost side of it but really trying to make it much more clearer what are the benefits and the essentials of of having a caring society and a caring economy well that's um you're putting you're, you're just talking about so many of the healthy trends the trends uh, from what I call a domination system to a more partnership-oriented society. Uh, and certainly the changes in parenting, as well as the understanding, and that's, of course, been shown empirically both for parenting and for companies, that, uh, yes, a more safe and caring environment actually unleashes human creativity. Uh, it it it. it is really not to speak of the fact that it makes people feel much better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we are talking really of important trends, and and you do take me to some of the basic work that I have done, which, of course, you know, because economics, as I've written in The Real Wealth of Nations, does not really spring up full-blown by itself. It's contextualized in a larger society, in larger cultural values uh, and beliefs, right? Mm. And so the fact that uh, we have economic thinking as well as political thinking like right versus left or religious versus secular or Eastern versus Western, that doesn't pay attention to the social construction of the relations uh, that really determine how the brain develops. I mean, this is, we're talking early childhood. We're talking about what a child experiences, but also observes, and that's where gender comes in. Because if a child observes a model of humanity where one half uh, is considered superior, right? And the other half inferior. One half is to dominate. The other half is to be dominated. One half is to be served. And the other half is to serve. What kind of template do they have for, for equating difference, don't they, with 
uh, in-group versus out-group thinking. And, and, and that is so basic. We need an integrated, progressive political and economic agenda because the people pushing us back, you know, whether it was Hitler in Germany or whether it's ISIS in the Middle East, they get it. A top priority for them is always going back to that uh, so-called traditional, which it really isn't. You know, there were earlier traditions that were more egalitarian. A family that's highly punitive, where women are subordinate, they get it. I mean, they, they get the connection between strongman rule in the state and strongman rule in the family. And we've got to get progressives to understand that. And that's really a lot of what my work has been about. And I think that um, it, this is so deeply rooted and so programmed um, that even I have to say that I <clears throat> catch myself sometimes um, questioning, you know, my beliefs or <laughs> uh, just as an example, I just very recently um, switched to a dentist and also to um, just a, a family doctor. And both are women, and I would say probably about 15 years younger than me. And so even for me, you know, having, I'm re I always tell them that I'm so proud of them. <laughs> but, but even for me to change this mental image from an old uh, man in a gray suit, uh, in a, with gray hair, you know, in a, in a white lab coat, to going to uh, maybe a 27-year-old young woman is, is, it takes, you know, still a, a kind of a leap in mindset, even I would say for, for the most progressive thinkers. So, so to, to take the whole society along with us on this, this journey of, of attitude change, of mindset change is, 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 is quite a task, I would say. Yes, it is. And the more that people like you and I undertake it, uh, the more chance we have for the future of our children and generations to come. Absolutely. Now, before we go to, unfortunately, our last question um, of this podcast conversation, Rian, uh, maybe uh, can I ask you to share with listeners um, the website or, or other details of where they can find you, where they can find your work? Well, of course. Um, we have a number of websites. Uh, the Center for Partnership Studies website is uh, www.centerforpartnership.org. Again, Center for Partnership, you know, one word, centerforpartnership.org. I also have my own website um, for those who want to find out a little bit more about me. But that one is, uh, strangely enough, Rian Eisler. Dot com and it's r i a n e e i s l e r dot com with two e's in the middle and i hope that people will come to our website uh, that people will and also enroll in the webinars that we offer through our caring economy campaign um, which uh, really i think are very important as well as uh, webinars that we offer that I, I, I love to teach. So I do some, um, you know, aside from teaching um, in other, you know, uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, places, 
I, I love teaching on the web, and I give a course called Changing Our Story, Changing Our Lives. That really covers the body of my work, and I'll be giving one again uh, in the early next year. Great. So coming to the last question, um, which is more or less always the same type of question, if I could ask you, Rian, to give one advice to... Um, let's say the prime minister or president of, of a country or the world <laughs> or nations, um, what they should be focusing on in terms of policies, in terms of measures, in terms of initiatives? What is for you now top of mind, key priority? Well, I think that um, I've already alluded to this. Um, the top priority, uh, I think, that a prime minister or president of any country should have is to leave behind the old fragmented thinking of the old social categories, um, be they capitalism or socialism, or be they right or left, or religious or secular, Eastern or Western, and really uh, think of really in terms of that question, the question that has animated my research is what do they need to do so that there are foundations, foundations uh, for helping people realize their, what makes us truly human, our capacities for caring, for sensitivity, for creativity. And that's why uh, I would recommend two things. One, that they really learn about the configurations of the partnership and domination systems. And two, that they really adopt and develop social wealth economic indexes. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rianne. I, I, I feel that we only cover just a really, really small piece of your work and the work of the Center for Partnership Studies. Um, and I'm sure that we could have gone on a lot longer, but I certainly thank you and uh, have learned so much uh, already in this conversation. And I'm sure our listeners are also taking away a lot of new inspiration and knowledge and, and, and really inspiration, I guess, to go and look further because that's what we we really want them to, to do, to, to keep on learning and um, exploring further. So thank you again. And thank you, Agnes, for really a wonderful conversation and for all of your inserts, insights and all of your important uh, thinking and work. <laughs>